Welcome back to Killer Fun. I'm Christy. And I'm Jackie. And we're so glad you're back with us today. Today, we're talking about the informant. So <laughs> weird. It was it was weird. It was one of those movies that I enjoyed it, but it kind of didn't enjoy it. But it was kind of funny, and it was really sad, and it was confusing. And we're going to get into all that. Yeah, <laughs> I, because it was made very differently than maybe I expected. But yeah. I remember thinking, I'm interested and yet fully bored. Oh, okay. <laughs> so maybe I have more critique on the filmmaking itself than the whole oh. plot, because the plot was good. Yeah. Well. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good plot. Yeah. It was a true plot. It, it is. We're going to get into all that. So it was made in 2009. It is rated R. So I think primarily for language and maybe for confusing storyline. I, I don't think that, that like a child would be interested in this at all. Oh, no. It's got too many twists. Yeah. Uh, it was filmed on Location Indicator, Illinois. It's got a star-studded cast. Matt Damon was he did I thought he did a great job there is Patton Oswald who's a comedian and best known in the true crime community for being the widower of Michelle McNamara who wrote I'll be gone in the dark which was about the Golden State Killer Tom Papa who's a comedian though he's not particularly funny in this role but he is a comedian who has a spectacular comedy special on Netflix it's really funny really yeah yes I have to go watch that yeah, he's he's very funny um, Melanie Linsky who was the wife she was an up in the air and an HBO show called Togetherness that was really funny Scott Bakula who's most well known for his stint in Quantum Leap from 1989 to now, 1993. that is a blast from the past oh right there. gosh. Wow. Joe McHale, who's a comedian. He was on Community and The Soup. And it was directed by Steven Soderberger, whose uh, first movie was Sex, Lies, and Videotape. He also did Traffic. He did another whistleblower true crime story in Aaron Brockovich. He's done lots and lots of movies, so it was pretty interesting. So, shall we do a quick recap? Yeah, let's recap this thing. <gasps> okay. Well, we know right away that this guy is a great big old nerd because he's extolling the virtues of corn and wondering the correct pronunciation for the car that he's riding in. Is it Porsche or is it Porsche? And all I could think was Joey from Friends. <laughs> Remember the episode yes. when he when he finds the keys to a Porsche uh-huh. and he keeps doing the Porsche thing and okay. I the whole episode kept going Porsche really Porsche maybe Porsche and then I realized I'm kind of like Matt Wicker <laughs> <laughs> I, I had that same conversation in my head okay well according to a car dealer in Fremont California who sells these particular vehicles it is Porsche. Really? Yes. I'm I watched, so annoyed. I watched videos. It's very pretentious. Porsche. Porsche. And it's not really Porsche. It's Porsche. It's it's very pretentious. Like wow. Super pretentious. But you know, well, they can have their Porsche. <laughs> not interested. <laughs> But I will forever call it a Porsche because, yes, that's well, fine. I'm from Georgia, and that's yeah. what I'm just going to do. Yeah. <laughs> so most people haven't heard of his company, Archer Daniels Midland ADM, but they are affiliated with so many products that you don't even know you've had contact with them, but you have. Because corn is in everything. Corn is in 
everything. Which, if you don't learn anything else from this movie, that is the takeaway. Corn is everywhere. Yes. Yes. I think there's plenty else to learn from this movie, but that's... (laughs) That's the one fact I'm holding on to. (laughs) Uh, Whatever works for you. So there's this plant in the Midwest. It's the biggest lysine plant in the world and is located there because it comes from corn. It's being made manufactured, manufactured, developed, it's a weird thing. Processed. Yeah. Maybe that's a good word for it. It's it's confusing. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, Mark Whitaker is obviously very high level in this company. He has both his own office and a secretary, but there's something wrong in this plant. There's a virus that's causing production to be way down and costs are way up and there's, they're not having the kind of production that they like, that they need in order to keep them number 44 on the Fortune 500 list instead of falling to 45. They made a big deal about that they could not fall this one spot. Uh, There may be a mole from a Japanese competitor injecting the virus into their production facilities. They're being extorted for $10 million. And so they bring the FBI in and Mark is super annoyed. And I wondered as I was watching this, why he was so annoyed that the FBI was coming in. It should have been my first clue that There was something else going on. I honestly, going into this movie, just thought it was a whistleblower movie that was kind of funny. I didn't realize there was additional stuff. That was at play here. Yeah. Well, because he was. He was very mad that the FBI was coming in. And it is. It is your first clue that there's going to be a twist to this. That... That it's not just about being extorted or having, you know, a ransom that he doesn't want other people to know about this, which is interesting. Yes. So we learn that Mark is married. He has children. It's sort of indeterminate and confusing. And I I think that that's on purpose. And I didn't see it mentioned anywhere, but they're having dinner and there's one kid at the table. And then later on, there's two kids being sent off to do something. And then still later on, you see a family photo and there's three kids. So I don't know how many kids there were or what we're supposed to glean from that. If we're supposed to glean anything, and maybe it's just the deception that we're supposed to understand there or maybe understand after the fact. So Brian Shepard from the FBI comes to the house to tap the company phone line and Ginger basically tells Mark Whitaker, the main character here, that if he doesn't tell the FBI what's going on, she will. She forces his hand. So (laughs) Mark gets into the car with the FBI agent because he's worried his house might be bugged because he thinks he's in the firm. I did think of that. He sees himself in a John Grisham novel. Yep. (laughs) And he confesses to the FBI agent that the extortion is small compared to what he knows. And so he starts telling him that ADM is working with Japanese and Korean competitors to engage in price fixing of the lysine market, which would... We're like, who cares? No, it increases the costs of food worldwide. Yeah, everything. It, it, it really is a massive, massive con. Yeah. yeah. On economy. Yes. Yeah. Like the entire world's food supply is more expensive than it ought to be if 
lysine costs are manipulated. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. So then we have Tom Wilson, who was Mark Chevron, who was the head of ADM security. And um, I was like, where do I know that guy from? He is Biff in Back to the Future. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. I thought about that, too. Yeah. I was like, oh, my gosh, it's him. Yeah. I was, I was like, kind of excited. I I'm know. like, hey, he got work. Good for him. <laughs> I'm always glad when I see these people who have, like, small parts but, like, recognizable ones. I'm like, good for you. You're working. Hey, McFly. <laughs> then ADM stops cooperating with the FBI, but... Mark is still talking to them. He gives us the impression that he's a biochemist who was pulled into management and maybe doesn't approve, or maybe he just doesn't want to go to jail. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. I think he doesn't want to go to jail. Oh, I think he absolutely. He presents himself as a whistleblower because of altruistic motives, but really he was kind of forced into it. Well, he was forced into it and a little bit by his own hand. Yeah. Oh, (laughs) yeah, we'll get there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So Mark wears a wire for the FBI, but man, he is lying left, right, and center. He's lying about being adopted. He tells different stories about how old he was when his parents died, when he was adopted. Did he spend time in an orphanage? Did he not? He was lying about the Japanese competitor and the extortion from the beginning. And he only lied about it because he didn't know how to fix the virus issue in the production facilities. And he was trying to buy himself some time. No wonder he didn't want the FBI involved because there was nobody extorting them. Yep. It was all a lie. It was all lies. It was all self-serving, self-protecting lies. Yes. Except for the price fixing. The price fixing was actually happening. Except that he used it for his own self-protection and self-sufficiency. Yes. So that is a a hallmark of this man's character, Uh is that even his good deeds are manipulated for his own benefit. Yes. The FBI wonders why Mark is doing this. Mark Whitaker thinks he's not only going to have a job at ADM at the end of this, but that he's going to be running the place and he's deluded. And the FBI and his attorneys all know this. Yeah, They all know that what he thinks is going to happen is not going to happen. He thinks he's going to be the hero who takes down all of this this corruption and then he's going to come to the top and be the one who was the whistleblower and so therefore the one who thou can fix it because everybody else is gone he really has some grand delusions uh yeah mark tells the fbi that he's been getting kickbacks because he thinks it's going to look bad on adm the investigation shifts a lot i mean they're still investigating adm but uh there's another investigation or the primary focus of the investigation shifts from adm's price fixing to mark's embezzlement which is huge a lot and as the movie goes on we find out it's huger and huger and well and you never quite know how huge it actually ever was no no well and isn't that the case because with these manipulations it he uses a little bit of truth to conceal the lie, right? And so he gives it a little bit of truth. Oh, I only, I embezzled, well, this, you know, couple million or so. And, yeah. And, 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 oh, four and then million. later on, it's, oh, it's eight million. It, and then oh, it's wait, nine, million. nine million. Oh, it's 11 million. Yeah. Oh, uh, wait, I'm a trillionaire. Where'd that come from? <laughs> Just kidding. But yeah. And so he uses a little bit of truth to keep him on the hook. Right. 
Exactly. Mark evidently was also involved in Nigerian 419 scams at some point, somehow, and made millions. He forged a letter from his doctor saying the FBI should have known he was mentally ill. He ends up in a courtroom and he's asking for leniency for his mental illness. And the judge says that his illegal behavior wasn't mental illness, just, and I love this, garden variety greed (laughs) like the judge hit the nose on the head yes so the adm bosses some of them actually do go to jail for their price fixing they spend between two and three years in jail mark spends quite a bit longer in jail because of his kickbacks and scams in addition to his participation in the price fixing. So the upside of this, the government has collected about a billion dollars in fines because he exposed the price fixing. And that's, see, that's, oh, that's so hard to it's, swallow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a, it's challenging it's because a, you want him to be black and white. You want him to be all bad or all good. And he's a human, a real human, and he's neither all bad nor all good that's just the like point. the rest of us it, and that, it's kind of like a game of thrones moment uh-huh. right when you kind of figure out that okay well nobody is just all good or all bad we right. all have now some people are more so than others on either camp let's let's be fair right we talk about a lot of ooh, yeah bad really on this show yeah. um yeah for sure but and there's a lot of people who have done bad things but they're not bad people but then you have people who are kind of just i don't oddly right in the middle and you can't even you don't know what you believe is this a good person who did bad things is this a bad person who did good things do they lean one way or the other it's like did george r, r. martin come up with this guy yeah <laughs> you know he could have he could have he could if have. he just come up with the last book of the series i'd be a lot happier <laughs> I think he's, no, I have, this is not a Game of Thrones podcast, so we're not going to talk about that right now. (laughs) (laughs) I have theories. I'll speculate about them in my Facebook groups that are shout out to Thronerinos. Shout out to George R.R. Martin riding like the wind. I I wish I could say I believe that. I know. Anyway, (laughs) so we're going to take a real quick break and get some more coffee because obviously we need it because we're not talking a million miles a minute. (laughs) Obviously we need more coffee. And then we're going to talk about some movie production stuff and we're going to dig into some psychology and some real life stuff. It's going to be good. So join us after the break. Are you looking for a review of terrible horror movies without an obnoxious scene-by-scene breakdown? We cover the synopsis, each kill, and ridiculous moments that the worst streaming horror has to offer. Join Jared, Nick, and Nathan every other Wednesday as they watch bad horror movies so you don't have to. We're We're the the Spoop Spoop Squad. Squad! Let us haunt your phone or other streaming device. So, movie stuff. Matt Damon gained 30 pounds for the role. Not that he looked it. No, not really. I mean, he looked pretty, like, average. Yeah. I mean, like, he was like an average, you know, 30-something guy. But he said it was very, very easy to gain the weight. Very, very fun. I just basically ate everything I could see for a few months. I'm like, 
what a sacrifice What's he made for us. irritating <laughs> is that he probably lost it just as easily. Because men. Men. <laughs> oh, and he was in such good shape, though. I mean, he for him really to gain was. 30 pounds is... It was probably a lot of work to gain 30 pounds. I mean, it was fun, but mm-hmm. it was a lot of work. I'm sure it it's actually It's kind of like was. podcasting. It's really fun, but it's a lot of work. It's still a lot so. of work. <laughs> It's worth it work. <laughs> it's worth it work, for sure. This movie is based on a book of the same name by Kirk Eichenwald. He is a writer for the New York Times. He said in an interview with NPR, <laughs> I love this quote, if you read the book, the story is serious, and the story contained in the movie is serious. But universally, people will tell me when reading the book that they laughed out loud, that there are events that are so ludicrous that you can't do anything but laugh out loud. And I'm like, fair? Absolutely fair. fair. I experienced that. <laughs> I could like, I mean, you laugh from shock as much as something actually being funny. You're just like, I can't believe he still thinks he's going to have a job at ADM. You're laughing at him. Of course, Matt Damon does such a good job of bringing the character to life that I think sometimes I was laughing with him just because of the way that he plays something. Mm -hmm. It's kind of comical. Right. And I don't know how much of that is true to the real Mark Whitaker. If the real Mark Whitaker had that, a bit of that charm or whether that was just pure Matt Damon bringing it to the mm. stage because... I don't know. You know, when you watch Matt Damon, I never associate his characters with other characters, but I always associate his charm. Yeah. Yes. Fair. That's always. super fair. Super fair. So Soderbergh, at this time, he'd gone through a whole set of movies including the informant where he was kind of on a theme and the theme was fundamentally unknowable characters. So he did Che, which is about Che Guevara, the girlfriend experience and the informant. And those movies, they have a completely different narrative structure, completely different tone from one another, but they have this fundamentally unknowable character and their motives, feelings, and inner lives remain just out of reach. And I was like, ooh, that's interesting. What a nice way to like find commonality among the things that he was working on. Even though they were so different, they still had this kind of thing. Well, it resonates yes. with what we deal with in real life. And like you always say, you know, your professor had said, you know, who is this bastard and why is he lying to me? I thought about that a lot. Uh, Yeah. Your unreliable narrator. And um, we talked a little bit about that with Dexter even in our other show. So we're going to talk about that some more today. Good, because I love Dexter. (laughs) So, and I think about that, but it's true. We have people in our lives that are unreliable narrators to us. And sometimes, sometimes we're our own unreliable narrator and all we're doing is trying to seek somebody to help us process through it. And so it's (laughs) Or we're seeking to lie to our ourselves. Oh man, also that's a true. thing. So just in case you were wondering, after all the price fixing and craziness that happened, ADM is still a thriving business. 40,000 employees still have, you know, a huge presence in the marketplace. Their website says an unrivaled portfolio of ingredients and systems. ADM can support you all the way from plant to plate. I was like, oh, that was totally written by a marketer. Oh, totally. (laughs) At least at three cents per word. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, 
for the marketer's sake, I hope more than that. I hope so too. <laughs> but I love alliteration, so I'm very I'm I'm partial to that. Yeah. Yes, me too. I think it's very clever. It is clever. Yeah, but I also like puns. So yeah. Fair. So normally we would talk about the can it happen? Well, it did happen. So that's a pretty answered question. Yes, but I did have some questions about what some of the things they talked about were. Amen, because okay. some of this was confusing. Okay, so lysine? Lysine. What, what is lysine? Let's talk about that. <laughs> it's an essential amino acid, and it's found in protein. It's one of the amino acids that our body can't manufacture, so we need to get it from outside sources. So without lysine, you can't absorb calcium or make collagen or create antibodies or enzymes or hormones, and it's vital in growing animals and them having eyesight that these are it's really really important so it is really one of the basis amino acids for life on our planet interesting yeah they are using this to help grow crop animals basically okay they help they help them grow sturdier stronger more quickly by incorporating this into their feet okay so instead of waiting for them to get it just naturally they kind of give them a boost yes Yes, they okay. add it to their feed so that they grow more robustly. And yet it's still a natural thing. We're just synthetically producing it. I don't even think it's synthetically producing it. They were The plant was more um, extracting it. Okay, like forcing the production of right. it. Yes, In like a, it, was, it, okay. was, it was forcing it out of the... I can't, I can't quite tell. I tried to figure out how honest it was that a virus could cause a problem in the plant i i couldn't really there was if there was information out there i wasn't able to understand it because chemistry was never my thing i tried <laughs> so hard to be good at chemistry and it was never anything that really made any sense to me yeah like i should be able to like memorize the periodic table and understand the the equations which are both things i'm absolutely capable of doing but the application of it, and my son does this. This is chemistry is his thing. I should ask him a little bit about it because he has maybe a third of the periodic table memorized. And so he can go through it and, and you know, he can look at a periodic table and he knows whether it's up to date or not. Oh, that's great. Right? Cool. For instance, he needs a new poster. By the way, periodic table posters, not cheap. Oh, not cheap. And so there's a new one. And so it's expensive, like hundreds of dollars for these things if you that want a much? nice one. If you want a really good one. So FYI, your school classrooms probably don't have updated. Pitch in and get your science teachers new (laughs) updated periodic tables. Okay, I digress. But he really loves chemistry. And I have to say that I'm always amazed at his ability to understand the interactions of these things. Right. Because it it seems like you should be able to memorize how they interact and be able to understand it. But every time you introduce something else, it changes the way they all interact. So Mark, in one of his crazy rants, talks about poisonous butterflies yes see these are the parts that are funny it's a really fun his inner monologue is really very entertaining um so he mentioned a south american butterfly who could poison a bird so i was like "Hmm, i'm curious which one is that i think he was talking about 
the zebra longwing butterfly that resides in South America. And the caterpillars of this butterfly eat the leaves of passion flowers. And the passion flower contains a toxin that makes the butterflies have an unpleasant taste. So interesting. I thought it was really interesting. So I thought, are there other poisonous butterflies? There must be. There must be. There must be. So just for fun, I went looking and the African giant swallowtail is has a wingspan of nine inches. Wow. Very, very large. And it's said to be the most toxic butterfly species and that one butterfly can contain enough toxin to kill up to six average house cats. Wow. Yeah, it's a lot. That's huge. It's a big butterfly, but that's a lot of toxin. It really kind of is. I mean, especially if we're talking about cats the size of yours. Well, yeah. Your cat's gigantic. My cat is huge. Yeah. I don't know. I might give him a run for his money. <laughs> this little and butterfly. The, obviously, monarch butterflies, we all are fairly familiar with that because they eat milkweed and milkweed has toxins in it. Longwing butterflies, another one that feeds on passion flowers, and pipeline swallowtails. They basically turn what they eat into bitter stuff mm-hmm. in their wings so that when they're eaten. So a minor bird has been observed catching butterflies mid-flight only to reject them unharmed. Interesting. Yeah. Um, African swallowtails, the very first one, the most toxic one that can kill cats, will fill the air with a repulsive odor if they feel threatened. They're skunk butterflies? They're skunk butterflies. Oh, I hate them. I hate them so much. <laughs> Stinky butterflies? That's so sad. Well, they live in Africa. It's ironic. Isn't it weird that the cutest little things can stink so bad? No, because skunks can be... If you get them when they're young, uh-huh. like... That you can, they can have their scent glands removed if you were to keep them as pets. And they're sweet pets. Yeah, they're like very kind, but they're sweet enough pets that if you get them at a young enough age, you don't even have to have their scent glands removed because they just won't spray. They're just so cute. Uh-huh. They are cute. And they hate my dog. And they, uh, well, your dog is so cute. They feel threatened. Well, the dog also <laughs> runs extremely happily. Yeah. <laughs> Tongue let's, flapping and oh, it's let's not good. Play. Let's play. And so they skunk played and mm-hmm. my dog came back dripping. No. Dripping. Do you know how close she got? To be dripping? A lot. Oh, it was really so close. Bad. Oh. It was so bad. Baby. But I think the skunk has babies. And because, that's why. Yeah, she's spraying all over the yard, which is why we've got to we've got to catch her. Yeah, yeah. 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 She's wreaking they, havoc. Yeah. She she needs to live somewhere else. She does. Not in my backyard. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So then they talked about the 419 fraud. I do want to know more about this. Okay. Well, I have more information about this. Okay, good. So good for you. Good for me because it's interesting. So we've all seen this probably. You've gotten it in the mail. You've gotten it in your email more than likely. It's from somebody in Nigeria or the like somewhere else over there and they have the desire to share a portion of millions of dollars with you if you will just help them get this money out of the country 
this cracks me up because there are so many good viral videos out there of people who have responded to these emails and started conversations with them. And have you seen the TED talk about this? Yes. It is hysterical. We have got to, we're going to post that. We've oh. got to post that because it's so worth your time. It's <laughs> so good. My son loves that one. He's watch that TED talk more than any other because he's just like, it's so funny. I want to do it. I want to do it. And I'm like, thank you, Google, for filtering those things out of his regular email that he doesn't, so he doesn't realize he's probably gotten them before. Probably. But probably. Yeah. I'm like, you know, I know. Let's spend our time on geography (laughs) (laughs) or chemistry because apparently we need to know more about this chemistry Uh, what the scheme relies on is a willing victim they justify it by saying they've shown a propensity for larceny by responding to this invitation they'll say they want to give you this money and that they'll give you a portion of it if you just help them. Well, and then there's the legal fees and bribes, and they go into great detail talking about all of these different kinds of things that they have to do. And if you will just help them with these fees up front, then they can get you the money and you'll get paid back all of your investment plus much, much millions more. Yeah. I mean, if you're a law-abiding citizen, usually you can look at this and see that it's obviously farcical. It's not designed to really be something that's going to be beneficial to you. They're just trying to take your money. It feels obvious, unless you do already have, I think, as they said... A propensity to larceny. Or a certain naive attitude. Yeah. 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 The reason it's called a 419 fraud is because it violates the Nigerian criminal code 419 because you're trying to remove the funds in a manner that violates their law. So that's why it's called the 419 fraud, which I didn't realize. And the Nigerian government isn't sympathetic at all because A, it's bringing a bunch of money to their country. B, you're willingly violating their own laws. So they don't really care that much. Yeah. I could see them not having to put a lot of energy into that. Yeah. Somebody pointed out on Twitter that Michael C. Hall had called Dexter an unreliable narrator. And I argued, in hindsight, incorrectly probably, that he wasn't really an unreliable narrator, that he believed what he said. He's not lying to us when we're watching the show Dexter. He's not an omniscient narrator, but I didn't see him as an unreliable narrator. Evidently, you can be an unreliable narrator inadvertently. So I would say Mark Whitaker is uh, advertent. Is that is that a word? I think so. I think so. <laughs> if it's not, it ought to be. <laughs> an advertent unreliable narrator. He is intentionally deceiving us and the FBI and everyone else. And himself. In, and and himself. So what is an unreliable narrator? Somebody that you can't take at face value what they're saying. They're insane. They're lying. They're deluded for any number of reasons. They it could be their nature. They maybe are just terrible people. They could be motivated towards some sort of 
you know, end. Like, for instance, Mark Whitaker was motivated to conceal some of what he wanted, which was money, uh-huh. his greed. And so he was purposely living the double life to get away with this crime over here. Right. And so there is a little bit of intentionality not even related to mm-hmm. him being, you know, mentally ill. Right. It's difficult to separate the behavior. What is mental illness and what is greed? How do they interplay with one another? There's danger in using this when you're writing or making a movie that the reader or viewer might not understand that the narrator isn't the final voice of truth and authority, that this might be something that you might not realize it right away, which I didn't realize it right away because I didn't know the whole story. I just knew a little bit of it. I just knew kind of the beginning part of the story. So I kind of took him at face value at first. And then I realized he's a big fat liar. He's a big fat liar. <laughs> I, that's one thing I did like about the movie is that it, it did have a good twist in that you start off and you do trust him a little bit. You do trust him. You feel bad for him. And then it's slowly revealed over time and you kind of get to know him. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you see him completely different. Right. So let's talk a little bit about the psychology. So I'm, I'm going to let you talk, but first I want to talk about some of the funny things that I think might be related to psychology. So this guy is like an absolute ping pong in his thoughts. He goes, Toro, bullfighter, sushi, Japanese businessmen who buy used panties from vending machines. Later, he talks about wool. I don't like it. Not even the fancy kind that comes from Marshall Fields that my wife Ginger likes. But she likes avocados, and I think those are gross. And who made up the name Regina, which is the capital of Saskatchewan? And on the one hand, it's really funny and really weird, but I have thoughts like this. I don't think they're completely abnormal. I don't think, no, it's not. To have abnormal. the kind of ping pongy thoughts, it's unusual to see it in a movie this way. Well, yeah, to see it displayed in that way, because I think a lot of us have these types of thoughts. We digress into our own places. Some of us are more apt to say it out loud than others. You know what I'm saying? Uh And some people are quicker at it than others. Yeah. Right? So if you think of our, there's one kind of theory that our mind works in like almost like a node system. So a node gets kind of lit up and that node has somewhat connections to all these other things. Sort of like the game that we played, the word game. Oh, yeah. we had to make connections and I had to give you clues as to the words. Yeah, we played code names. Code names. Yeah. So our brains kind of work that way. So if you say, you know, tiger to me, I'm going to think rhino. Oh, well, you have to know me why that matters. Because see, I have a Bengal cat, Uh which is like a big cat that looks like a tiger, and his name is Rhino. Yeah. So that's a node for me. But once I'm at Rhino, I could easily switch back to, okay, well, the animal Rhino, and then be like, horns, what is the deal with that? Why is it... Like yeah. that. How many animals actually have one horn? Is he kind of like a unicorn? I mean, do you see? I mean, uh-huh. just keep going from one node to another. Yeah. So our minds really kind of do work like that a little bit. Yeah, that's why I was like, on the one hand, we know later in the movie that he has an actual diagnosis of bipolar slash manic depressive disorder, whatever it is they're mm-hmm. calling it these days, whatever they called it in the 90s when he was diagnosed with it. That maybe that is a symptom of that, and that's how they were telling us that, but I don't think that that's necessarily abnormal 
thought process. Well, as with anything, it's not that is it yes abnormal, no abnormal. It's a kind of on a contingency, like on a range. So okay. there's a normal amount of this. Then there are people who do it like at 800 times the speed of everyone else and go way further. Like this guy? Like this guy. <laughs> right? Like most of us are not going 90 miles per minute or per second in our minds with all of that and able to do it with such charm and wit. Now, Mark Whitaker, I don't know. We don't know how he really thought. We know that somebody wrote a script for Matt Damon and Matt Damon had to memorize it and deliver it. Right. But there are people who really do go that quick. And that's kind of one of those hallmarks of, of what you might think of as a mania or a hypomania, like a energizing uh-huh. state of mind that comes from the euphoria that's a little on the delusional side of euphoria. You know, but you think of people who are not just extroverts, but super optimists, they can be kind of quick too. They're very quick in their thinking. You think about that energy, right? Uh-huh. That's the main As an optimist, you as know. Somebody, you, well, and you've said this to me before. I'm like, well, I can usually find the positive spin on things. And you're like, yeah, and you do it really, really quickly, which is almost, I know you mean it lovingly, but it was almost an indictment when you said it. <laughs> <laughs> you do, you go straight there. Like, yeah. it's so fast. Yeah. I'm more of a realist. I'm a processor. I'm unreal in my optimism. I'm just like, maybe there, maybe we can find a positive spin on this. Yeah, I don't go maybe, there. Yeah. I, I process... <laughs> Uh-huh. I process through the balance of the skepticism and uh-huh. the positive, and yeah. yeah, I'm a little bit more. Yeah, but the skepticism part typically isn't helpful when you're talking to somebody in crisis. Then that's what makes you gifted in oh, that. Oh, well, you know, you. you're very gifted in that. <laughs> and and so, like I said, it's not about being black and white. You're crazy. You're not crazy. It's just kind of like a continuum, you know. Yeah, that's but fair. so for Mark Whitaker, we see this inner monologue and. You know, he's going quick, he's fast digressing, he's thinking of all these things. What's more is he's doing it while he's doing something else. And that kind of ability is really interesting because people with bipolar, um, like Kay Jameson, who wrote An Uh Unquiet Mind, and I think she's going by her another last name right now. Um, Uh, She's listed as Kay Redfield Jameson. Right. So So she's using. She talks about her her bipolar because she is in psychology and her bipolar forced her to be super productive at times because she had so much energy. And so she went through so many dark periods, so many challenges. And when asked, you know, would you get rid of it? Would you go through that again? She actually kind of said, yeah, it makes me who I am. It was an interesting take on taking that thing that's a challenge to you and looking for Uh the positive in it, kind of channeling it for good. That's it. Mark didn't so much channel it for good at at the time not the time yeah mm-hmm. and he, when he was asked he actually kind of said the same thing yes yes so we'll get into that a little bit so now the real life stuff so normally this is where i would talk about like real life stories that are correlated in some ways but this is a real life story so let's talk a little bit about it so the price fixing and the embezzlement are pretty accurate Mm-hmm. The extortion was a lie from the get-go, but it's fairly accurately portrayed in the movie, from my understanding, is that way he presented the extortion was sim- very similar to how it actually happened. So that's okay, good. What they don't talk about in this movie that they decided to make comedic 
was that Mark Whitaker did a couple of times try and commit suicide. They didn't talk about this they at all. They didn't talk about that at all. It was really very left out. It, you, it's not the kind of thing you would have expected. The way his character behaved, he didn't seem to blame himself or take a lot of responsibility at all for his behavior. He was always trying to blame somebody else. But the good thing that did come of this, which they didn't really also didn't talk about, was that after the price fixing with ADM came to light, they started looking for it more. And whereas they used to find two or three cases a year where this happened, it jumped up significantly into the dozens of cases that they found. Actually, this is much more common than we. It's actually pretty ubiquitous. And I think actually we get a clue to that because the company was willing to call in the FBI when they heard about extortion, not even really thinking that there was a big chance that this price fixing, because as far as they're concerned, they're just working with people in their own field uh, about the economy. They, right. I don't think that they, companies even, this is me bloviating. Oh, okay. I have no factual basis for this. <laughs> okay. But I think that companies then didn't see it as a true crime. Right. Yes. I think they saw it as, hey, we're in this field together, so we're going to uh-huh. work together. This is business. This, this is, is just business. This yeah. is what we do. We we deal with this part of the economy, and that's what we do, and that's how we deal with competitors. I don't think they really saw it as something criminal. Right. Mark did. Mark knew. Mark knew it was criminal and still conspired and participated. So whereas... The higher ups may not have really realized it was criminal. Mark knew it was criminal because he's so a PhD. Kudos to the director for being able to portray the other guys as not thinking it's a big deal to call in the FBI and kind of being a little off put by <laughs> by Mark Whitaker's response to this. Yeah, like, like simmer what? down. Yeah. Like we got it under control. Uh-huh. It's not a big deal. We don't want to be extorted. We just want to extort the rest of the world. Right. And they just didn't even put it together. But Mark did. He, <laughs> yes. knew. he knew. He knew. Yes. Let's talk a little bit about whistleblowers. So I really thought it was a whistleblower movie. But it kind of wasn't really a whistleblower movie. It was really more about Mark's journey. So there's a whistleblower protection blog that's written by attorneys. And they were talking about it and they said, it's tough because Mark Whitaker is not their poster child. (laughs) Because he did a lot of bad stuff. Yeah. He really did... A lot of bad stuff. So they said more people like Karen Silkwood or Norma Ray or Aaron Brockovich. Those are more the kind of whistleblowers that they would like to see come forward. But they typically don't come forward because the laws are such it makes it really difficult for people to come forward and still be supported afterwards. They're going to lose their jobs. They're going to lose maybe their life like Karen Silkwood did when she exposed the radiation poisoning in the plant that she was working in. There's not a lot of laws to protect and compensate them. And they said, but it's a humorous movie. And if it can further the conversation about these laws, that that's a good thing. Yeah, this is one of those no press is bad press situations, yes. I think, for them. But I get what they're saying. He is yeah. not the poster child for goodness here. Right. But they do show that he was delusional in thinking he was going to keep his job, which right. actually does do them a disservice. Right. Yes, because exactly. exactly what made him not a good poster child is exactly what made him come forward because he thought he could 
beat the system. And the truth is these whistleblowers often are the stepping stone of sacrifice. Right. Yes. So the gentleman who wrote this particular blog is arguing that you're going to end up with people like Mark who get protections from these laws. People who are mentally ill, people who are delusional, people who are criminals in their own right in some way who are going to get protection from this. But that's just kind of part of the deal. If you're going to, if you want the sane, helpful people to come forward who are concerned because of criminal behavior by a corporation, if you want them to come forward and be protected, sometimes you're going to protect people like Mark Whitaker who don't necessarily have the best of intentions. Well, that's fair. Cops have known this for a long time with dealing with CIs. This is yes. what, what they do is they is they have people on the on the streets mm-hmm. that they're working in that right. community and then they you know have a person who well has a few charges and they they put them on as a CI and then they use them for that and they know I don't think that the whistleblowing community or anybody in white collar crime should be surprised by this but they but think they they're kind of above it and they're not right they're just not so right. come back down to earth yeah. <laughs> Then we, there's a really fascinating interview Mark Whitaker did with when the movie came out. And you can definitely see the change in him now that his mental disorder is being treated. Yes, it can. It's, it's striking how much different. And yet, there's a few little things that I'm like, maybe he's not quite all the way there yet. Uh, Mark says, when I talk about that case... I always feel like I'm talking about a different person. I hope most people would have handled it differently than me, which I'm like, well, that's good. Now, he didn't actually meet Matt Damon until the premiere of the movie. Oh. When they when they decided that they were going for kind of a humorous bent on it, Matt Damon and uh, Steven Soderbergh had been talking about making this movie for a number of years before it actually happened. And when they kind of decided to go into the comedic bent of it, he decided he didn't really want to meet Mark Whitaker. He didn't want to be like tainted by the person that he's become. He wanted to play him as a character of who he was prior. So they didn't meet, but it was fine. That wasn't an issue. So here's where... I think maybe a little delusion still remains. Yeah, where? And they mentioned this in the movie that Whitaker said that Dean Paisley, who was an FBI agent who he was working with from 1992 to 1994, they sent agents to go undercover and they'd been trained. And that even some of the agents who'd been trained would break after a year and Mark is very proud of himself that he did it for two and a half years working with the FBI with no training. And that's still really something he's very, very proud of. Hmm. And it just seems shouldn't really be that proud of being deceptive. <laughs> Maybe. I see where you're going. You know, yeah, I see like, where you're he's going. just a, like, there's a level of self-importance there that is interesting Yeah. But he admits, I lost my moral compass. When you don't know who you're working for, you start working for yourself. So I thought that was kind of a very astute level of self-reflection. And then he says, 
Uh, maybe people can learn from my story. I made a lot of mistakes. I'm not doing any finger pointing. It's my own fault. So yeah, I he, appreciate that he's taking responsibility. He seems to take stuff. a lot of responsibility for, for what happened then. And I can see, I can actually see him being proud of his abilities because, well, it's one of those, the challenges he had having his diagnosis, being bipolar, is actually what helped him to continue his deception, right. which actually did help him to live that double life for longer than maybe most people could, because he could live in cognitive <laughs> dissonance for longer. And so, well, if you're, if you're be afflicted with it, you might as well hold a banner about it and be like, well, at least there's this. That's, that's fair. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that, that the FBI agents wouldn't have made it to that level because of their mental illness. They would have been evaluated and deemed unacceptable. And that's what made him really good at it. He was good at it because he could live under that for quite a while. So he's still married to Ginger. They've been married a long time. They remain married. I think that's delightful. I'm so... I was happy to hear that. I was too. I just think that it's really uh, just a testament to her character honestly, to really like stick by him and see through his mental illness and see through his deception to a person that she still wanted to be with. And she like followed him all over that every time they moved where he was incarcerated, she would go and live there and be there for the entire visiting time every single weekend. Yeah. She's which is super unusual. Able to see the true him underneath, which is what we kind of see a little bit more of when he began his treatments and began to become more stable as you start to see a little bit more of, of who he is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he actually has a job. He's an executive at Cypress Systems, whom he met through a prison outreach program that they were involved in. And um, he is a brilliant man. He is a PhD and uh, he's a scientist. And so now that he's got some treatment, he's able to be a little more reliable, functional, (laughs) honest. Yeah, consistently functional. (laughs) That's fair. So then there's the argument for a presidential pardon. Yeah, he's been seeking this. Since 2001, quite a long time, he has had many, many letters of support. So four FBI agents who worked with him, a former case prosecutor, two judges, senators, congressmen, many, many more. One of those FBI agents is actually Brian Shepard, whom he wanted to sue at one point. And they've since kind of buried the hatchet and come together. And Brian Shepard wrote a letter arguing for presidential pardon and in which he never mentioned any of the bad things that Mark Whitaker did. He just said all of the good things that had come from it and trying to do this for him. So Mark Whitaker said, I'm not looking for forgiveness. I'm looking to show people who have fallen short as I have that there's an opportunity to turn one's life around. So what do you think about presidential pardon? Do you Um, think you should have one or not? I don't think he should have a presidential pardon. Okay. I don't. I I think that he has had a second chance to turn one's life around. He does have a job. He is at the top of a company. Yeah. He is not broke. He has had all the chance in the world. And in fact, the very story 
that, that he has because of all of this is what makes him successful today. I don't think a presidential pardon, A, would change any of that necessarily, but it does send a message that says your pardon as in you're excused. You're mm. excused from your behavior. And he wasn't excused. He has served his time. Let's close that chapter and move on. Let's okay. let's do something better and show people that you can pay the consequences of your actions and still have a second chance. That's fair. I don't know what a presidential pardon how it affects anybody. Why? Why? I mean, if it would make him feel better, well, I don't have a problem. It'll with let it. him buy a gun. Can we just avoid that? Like. <laughs> Like, if we expunge his record, we open him up to some of the restrictions that occur when you right. are incarcerated. Well, but if he had a presidential pardon, then I see, and I don't know that he needs to be precluded from voting, which, no. you know, I would I mean, say that, you know, this was a felony, kind of be a way to show redemption, maybe not excuse his behavior. Because I don't think anything excuses his behavior. But giving him a presidential pardon says redemption is there. You can be redeemed in the eyes of the law. You can be redeemed because the good outweighs the bad and that you are committed to no longer behaving in that way. I think that's why you have a sentence that progresses and then ends. Well, and I would agree with you if... When people came to the end of their sentence, they actually did come to the end of their sentence. Well, and I would agree about the voting thing. I think you and I are on the same page with that. But I don't think that you get to just act like it never happened. Well, I think until the laws change, this is how you give people back their benefits without continuing to penalize them for the rest of their lives. I can understand that, yeah. but I think it sends a worse message. Oh, okay. Well, I don't know. I, I hear what you're saying, and yet everything inside of me is saying that if we do this here, then what we're saying is that because of his mental illness, he's not held accountable for mm-hmm. his actions. And so that makes me a little nervous because, you know what, there's such a... And I'm not one to always invoke the slippery slope, but I'm a yeah. little bit worried about presidential pardon. Mm-hmm. I think there's something in between there that must be created, I guess, but... Uh I think if we pardon him, I don't know what it gets him, but I know that that he's lied before in a massive deceptive way that it begs the question, why does he need it when he's so successful? Hmm. So I guess I'm still skeptical. And maybe that's me. I'm using history to maybe inform what I think might happen Hmm. in the future. And maybe that means I'm not as hopeful or optimistic about his redemption. (laughs) But, um... Well, and my... I think the thing that sways me the most is that there are so many people who are working against him who still feel strongly that a presidential pardon is a valid thing for him. Yeah. I mean... I don't get it. Well, and I think that's just because it's a more complicated issue than we can understand in a two-hour movie. Truth. Or even hours of internet research that we, you know, have done about Mark Whitaker since then. I mean, there's only so much that can be included in an article or even a book. There's only so much that we can know about the situation and still have it be interesting without getting into the minutia of it all. I don't need to relive it. I don't need to spend years reliving his reality in order to understand it. 
I'll leave that to somebody else. So you tell us, what do you think? Should Mark Whitaker get his presidential pardon that he's so desired? I want to know what you think because I'm on, I'm, yeah, I don't know. (laughs) So you tell us, you find us on social media, Twitter, Killer Fun Pod is our Twitter handle. On Facebook, Killer Fun Podcast, the intersection of crime and entertainment, or you can send me an email, killerfunpodcast at gmail.com. Awesome. So next time, we're going to start a really fun series. We're going to do a series of four Nicolas Cage movies because he's done some really great movies and some really awful movies. And we thought, and a lot of them are pretty crimey. Oh, yeah. And so we thought... What fun would that be as we embark on summer? Let's have some summer fun movies. Nick Cage, summer fun. (laughs) So we're going to start with Con Air next time. So if you haven't seen this movie, I mean, really, go back and watch it again because you probably saw it a long time ago or maybe you've never seen it. It's so worth the watch. It's, I mean, it's ridiculous. Let's be honest. I mean, John Cusack. I mean, it's just great. John Malkovich is amazing in this film. Yeah. It's, I mean, and it's, it's called a film. I feel like it's just movie. Is yeah, it's what? like a, it was a summer blockbuster it movie. Was. And yes, so all the more reason why we should take this on. Yes, dive yes. in to yes. the crimey summer blockbuster. Yes, so get ready. I hope you like Nicolas Cage. Even if you don't like Nicolas Cage, it's kind of fun to like laugh at some of these ridiculous movies. Most definitely. Yeah, so we're starting with Con Air next time. So we'll see you soon. See you soon. Forge audio. Dream it. Build it. Share it.